From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Shelly Jodwain. And I'm Caitlin McNabb. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. For this week's show, we've dug up a story from our archives all about winter. It comes to us from last year's Winter Cities Shakeup Conference. But first, here's some environmental news headlines. Bitcoin has been in the news this week for the amount of energy it requires to run the computers that create bitcoins. One estimate from an economist tracking energy usage, Alex DeVries, stated that, quote, the computer power needed to create a single digital token consumes at least as much electricity as the average American household burns through in two years, end quote. Two years of energy usage for one bitcoin, that's quite a lot of power. An estimate from the Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index stated that, quote, the currency already consumes 0.15% of the world's energy and far exceeds the electricity consumption of Ireland or most African nations, end quote. In Iceland, for 2018, it is projected that the cryptocurrency will use more energy than the entire population of Iceland would heating their homes. Iceland's population is around 330,000. A lawmaker in Iceland, Smari McCarthy of Iceland's Pirate Party, thinks that the profits that Bitcoin mines earned should be taxed. Companies are flocking to Iceland to set up Bitcoin mining due to its cool environment and access to geothermal and hydroelectric energy. Increasingly, Canada's populations are moving to cities, but even city living is still affected by the whims of weather. This is Canada, after all, and we all know how cold it can get in the wintertime. Whether you stubbornly wear your existence in this frigid land as a badge of pride, or dream of escaping for a beach vacation as soon as temperatures drop, we're all familiar with winter's unpleasantries. Like when you walk from one place to the next with snow flying into your eyes, wind blowing your skin raw and each step becoming a shaky gamble on a dangerous slip. The weather, unfortunately, is not something that we can change, but we can discuss how we can make our cities more pleasant during the long winter months. Last year, in February of 2017, Edmonton hosted the city's second winter city shakeup, a conference that addresses how we can make our cities more lovable, healthy, safe, and accessible, and ultimately, how we can beat the odds and thrive in the city during the winter season. Guest contributor Jody Zink went to the conference and brings us a variety of interviews discussing solutions to combat the windchill blues by making cities more winter friendly. From February 16th to 18th, Edmonton hosted the second edition of the Winter Cities Shakeup. Attendees and speakers came from across Canada and the world to discuss how to overcome the unique challenges of life in winter cities. My name is Daniel Firth. I come from the city of Stockholm in Sweden and I was uh, invited to talk about Vision Zero. I'm Hazel Boris with Placemakers and I'm here at the Winter City Shakeup because I adore the idea of how to make our cities more lovable. Dr. Karen Lee, and I'm here to uh, speak about the health issues related to uh, 
uh, cities and winter cities. Jason Roberts with uh, Better Block Foundation. I'm the founding director. My name is Tyler Gawley. I work for Stantec Consulting, and I was here to talk about walking and safety and Vision Zero. My name is Bartek Komarovsky. I work for Velo Quebec in Montreal, and I was here to talk about winter cycling. All cities face their share of complex problems, but winter has a way of magnifying them. Transportation becomes treacherous. Reduced sunlight and increased cold take a toll on mental health. For many, winter is a season to survive rather than to enjoy. Hazel Boris doesn't see it that way. She is the managing director of Placemakers, an urban design firm, and she is a true lover of winter cities. She and her family happily relocated from suburban Florida to downtown Winnipeg, where she is now based. At the Winter Cities Shakeup, Hazel Boris spoke about designing lovable winter places. Our most livable places do tend to be the ones that we love the most and that therefore we're able and willing to invest and reinvest in over the generations. So my interest in Winter Cities is how to remove the barriers that stand in the way of livable, lovable places. And you had five components of good winter design that you said today. Do you mind repeating those or just quickly going over them? The first step, anyway, in, in creating livable winter cities is understanding which the, the character of our streets. And so that means understanding which streets are a link that's all about moving cars quickly or which streets are actually a place and which are all, which, which is all about sa spending time instead of saving time. So that first uh, designation of street character and ensuring that we have pedestrian and cycling networks that connect to each other and that you can really move through the whole city as a pedestrian should you so choose. And you can also move through the whole city as um, a driver of a private vehicle if you choose is really the first step and so once you've established if a place is a link or a place then the second step is really uh, that that fine grain network of streets that give us shelter from the wind and and let us get from one place to another as quickly as possible which can mean life or death in our colder places so creating that maximum block perimeter or that maximum block face by law and that changes its size based on where you are throughout the rural to urban spectrum. So then once we have that network established, then ensuring that you have a mixture of compatible uses within a neighborhood or one pedestrian shed or like a 10 minute walk across is really critical and ensuring that we stay human scale so that all of the human oriented things are on the fronts of the buildings and all of the auto-centric and services are on the backs of the buildings and then finally that we really integrate our civic amenities of our schools and community centers and places of worship at a, a neighborhood scale so that our kids can have safe routes to schools, so that we can have an active, um, connected, not socially isolated neighborhood. So those were my five big ideas, but we could certainly spend an entire day on any one of them. Yeah, and the one I do want to talk about specifically is walkability, because you talked quite a bit about walkability. and. Again, those five concepts that you mentioned really are good for design in any season, but why do you think walkability is specifically important in winter? 
Because you need places that you can stop and duck in and get warm frequently in a walkable place. So if I'm able to walk to most of my daily needs, it means that I'm stopping in as I make my way across the city and I'm warming up. So having that frequent stops and, and frequent places that that are walkable and that are friendly to the pedestrians so that streets, the buildings that don't turn their back or, or, or close a blind eye to the pedestrian are really essential for, for making our winter city something that we can actually inhabit as humans instead of inhabiting as cars. And you talked about, you applied your criteria to some places in Edmonton and you gave some examples of places that you thought really met your criteria for good winter design and then some that gave you mixed signals. What's an example of a place that gave you really good signals, like a, a place in Edmonton that really meets your criteria for good winter design? Well, apparently 104 is a good number here. So 104th Street and 104th Avenue, uh, both were very connected, convivial, complete places uh, that 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 certainly met my criteria for being part of the A grid or the pedestrian grid. Also white was another one. But then there were places like Jasper that really gave me mixed signals. The buildings were pulled up to the edge of the sidewalk, but then there were these wide, fast roads that kind of were scary and you had to watch yourself as a pedestrian. There were no street trees, there was no on-street parking. So the pedestrian realm was really one that was fraught with danger. Even our most delightful places in Canada, most of them we could make better in one way or another. So on white, if I were working with your urban design department, I would be talking about the possibility of putting in, um, you know, some cycle uh, infrastructure and to, you know, narrow, have this, the, the street go on a diet a bit and narrow up those travel lanes to make room for something that's really more productive and will pay back to the economy and society and the environment a little better than it does today. One last thing, uh, gentrification is something that when we design these lovable, beautiful places, we do drive up property values. And that is a good thing in terms of property taxes and, you know, municipal revenues, all that sort of thing. It also makes the place more enjoyable for everybody. But there is that element of people who could previously afford to live there not being able to and having to move somewhere else that isn't as lovable, maybe. I would just like a few thoughts on, on how we can approach that issue. Yeah, you know, that's gentrification is such a hard question. The first thing about gentrification is it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. What does when, but when displacement happens along with gentrification, that's certainly a bad thing, right? So if we're displacing our historic communities because we're engaging in placemaking that drives up the value, then that's a huge problem, right? And so I think the answer is twofold. One fold is leveling the playing field to make lovable places legal by right. And so if you can legally build a complete community that's walkable, then you're going to create more of it across the landscape and therefore all the prices will go down a bit, right? And so that's one, one part of it. Another part of it is until supply does catch up with demand, which it might be a few generations, and this is assuming we take some leadership roles and actually make change, I'm looking at your generation. <laughs> and so, you know, a really important part is to ensure that we have 
enabled a vast array of housing typologies. So, you know, and you're seeing a lot of this in the places across Canada that are experiencing more um, housing price pressures like you know, Vancouver, who is doing a great job with not only enabling um, laneway housing and, and accessory dwelling units so that you can have uh, a flat over your garage and rent it out, but they're also allowing more, more missing middle housing of all types. And so, you know, part of what's standing in our way along those lines is the fact that we've been creating a massive supply of three-bedroom, two-bathroom houses, even though our households are one- and two-person households, a majority of our households have, have, have changed to that. So it's the long tail of, of the housing market that until, until we as a development community start to acknowledge that more, we'll continue to have these gentrification pressures. What's your first impression of Edmonton, of this being your first trip here? I love it. It has a lot of, of, of soul, a lot of heart, a lot of potential. You know, clearly I prefer a few places within Edmonton more than others. Um, you know, when I met a family member for dinner and was walking home through downtown alone uh, kind of later in the evening, it, I, I see that we could maybe have more of a gender-neutral uh, planning lens engaged here because I quickly called an Uber. So, um, <laughs> however, I did walk across town on Jasper last night alone, and that one wasn't as scary. But I noticed that, that uh, you know, one block north of Jasper, there were no eyes on the street. It was, it was definitely not a 24-7 neighborhood. It was, you know, a single-use neighborhood. And so I think that there's some low-hanging fruit that could be had in Edmonton by really enabling and incentivizing that mixture of compatible uses on a neighborhood scale. The Better Block Foundation started when Jason Roberts wanted to buy a cup of coffee in his neighborhood. His part of Dallas, Texas was known as a bad part of town and drew very little investment from businesses. He and his friends grew frustrated with attending meetings and dealing with bureaucracy, so they decided to change things themselves. They built temporary bike lanes with duct tape and washable paint. They painted the storefronts they wanted to see on the front of abandoned buildings. After seeing these temporary representations of how the neighborhood could be, other community members joined the charge. From there, Jason's efforts have snowballed. He created the Better Block Foundation to share his experience with other cities. What's an example of a way that you rapidly transform a community? Sure, so what we'll do is kind of go meet with the community and ask them, you know, what's wrong with the neighborhood, what's missing, what would make it better, and then we will go in and, and rapidly do workshops with them to fix things. So we go in oftentimes and paint bike lanes together, add cafe seating, paint crosswalks, fix lights, make pop-up businesses, so coffee shops, flower shops, and bookstores. That's pretty common. So what were those three rules that you mentioned at the end there? So first rule is show up, and because I say if you don't show up the people that are opposed to everything will show up so you have so I join every club I can I tell everyone just join every nonprofit and organization in the neighborhood and take part 
The second rule is to uh, you know give your project a name. So uh, and I talk about getting like good design. And I created a streetcar authority. I created a uh, bike group, um, just well designed that people celebrate in our neighborhoods. And then last thing is I say uh, uh, blackmail yourself, or I say set a short date and then publish that you're going to do something, uh, and make it a short date because if people make long dates, they come up with worst case scenarios. They talk themselves out of it. But when it's a short date, uh, you have to follow through. And then in that terror that you're put through to go through that process means you start asking other people for help, which is what makes a play thing work anyway. What happens when the people who may have been naysayers before see the changes that you've made? Uh, it's been nice. Oftentimes then they'll see like, oh, this wasn't like the, the worst case scenario we imagined and this could actually work a little bit. So it's just a chance for people to kind of come together. I think people want changes. They want to see things happen. They're frustrated with talking. They're frustrated with planning. And I know I was, and I hear that time and time again. So, uh, and I think even the naysayers themselves, like they recognize there's a problem and we need to fix something quickly. Transportation is a completely different ballgame in winter. Tires struggle to grip snow, pedestrians walk gingerly to avoid slipping on ice, and bicycling becomes an extreme sport. Three speakers at the Winter City Shakeup talked about winter transportation. Daniel Firth came from Stockholm to discuss that city's approach to traffic safety, known as Vision Zero. So Vision Zero, it's a, a vision for traffic safety that says it's not okay that people die or are seriously injured on our roads. What, what do you use to uh, work towards that vision? So we're using all kinds of things. I guess the main one is about uh, managing speed, so traffic speeds and making sure that we design our roads in a way that it's not possible to drive faster than you should be. So using speed bumps, using roundabouts, using uh, narrowing streets. But it's also about how we maintain roads, and not least how we maintain roads in winter and how we maintain footways in winter so we don't slip and trip and fall. Uh, one thing that you said that particularly interested me was the gender lens through which you've, you've looked at these problems. Um, and so could you just give a quick summary of how that's affected your approach to Vision Zero? So in particular in terms of Vision Zero, the gender lens is around looking at what, uh, how different people are traveling. And it, it's, it's a gender lens initially, but actually it's about all kinds of equalities. Um, so what we see is that uh, the majority of people sitting behind the wheel of a car are men. And the majority of people walking and using public transit are women. And also that women tend to have much more complex journey patterns. So men are going to and from work. Women are taking kids to the daycare center. They are going to work. They're coming home. They're doing shopping. They're looking after elderly relatives. Even in a very equal society like Sweden, it's still very unequal division of, uh, of labor in the home. So uh, we're looking at how the, the money that the council spends on snow clearance is uh, affecting men and affecting women and, and seeing that actually the money we're spending, it's, it's, it's benefiting men more than it's women. So we need to look more at uh, clearing footways, clearing the paths to and from daycare centres, clearing uh, paths to and from transit stops. Bartek Komrowski came from Montreal to share tips on making bicycling easier in the winter. One of the essential features of um, Vision Zero is that when we design streets, we should assume that people make mistakes. And if we build in uh, some, some tolerance for those mistakes, we will reduce uh, the number of accidents. What I talked about was that um, the maintenance practices we use for active transportation, so actually in sidewalks and bike facilities, are they're derived from road maintenance techniques and they don't really work 
for pedestrians and for cyclists. So the typical maintenance method is plowing and then salting to melt away remaining, remaining snow. So a much better method uh, is to sweep snow away, which removes almost all of it, and then there, you don't have this need to dump a bunch of salt and, and, or crushed stones or sand. So instead you just have a bare concrete or bare asphalt surface. And it's, I would like to emphasize, I mostly talked about cycling yesterday, but this is a very good method for pedestrians as well. My essential message was that um, cities should really take seriously separating bicycles from cars because uh, that's more comfortable for people, it'll drive more people to cycle, and it's also easier to maintain in the winter. Tyler Gawley works for Stantec in Edmonton. He spoke about designing safe streets for all people and all seasons. I think it's really important to make our city as accessible as possible. There's a growing aging population that we need to uh, make sure that they they can actually get around their city uh, on their own so that they have that, mo that independence. Um, but we also have a big baby boom here in Alberta, so a lot of people pushing massive strollers, and so we need to allow families to move around too. I started my, my talk about like making a declaration basically saying that walking is a human right and I think if we don't acknowledge that we're going to get design of our cities wrong in the summer or the winter and I think we really need to be having a people-focused design. You're as cold as ice you're willing to sacrifice our love. It's no secret that public health suffers in winter. Simply going outside becomes a challenge, and long, dark nights put a strain on mental health. Dr. Karen Lee discussed a way to face these challenges in her presentation. The way we design our cities, the amenities that we put in place, how we maintain our cities are actually really vital to health and well-being of our communities. We know that um, people are trying to make healthier lifestyles, right? And we need them to do that in order to address some of our major epidemics today. So obesity, diabetes, heart disease and strokes, cancers, those are our leading causes of death. And the way that we design our cities uh, and our communities and neighborhoods and buildings are, have a vital role to play in either supporting people and being physically active and eating healthier, or they become barriers, right? We know from, for example, uh, people's New Year's resolutions that all the health education we've done is getting through, and people are trying, but they're failing. And they're failing because I think our communities, our neighborhoods, our buildings, our streets don't always support people in maintaining those behaviors that they actually want to do. I like to think of four parameters in which we can um, address some of these epidemics and help people in becoming healthier, especially in today's, in today's world. There is, we can think about the transportation realm. Can you walk, bicycle, take transit, which usually starts or ends with a, a walk, uh, as well as drive uh, in our communities? So a big part of what we're trying to do is actually facilitate more choices, not less, right? And this is actually good for everyone, including people who have to drive or want to drive, because whenever you actually create amenities that are safe and inviting and affordable and accessible for people who do want to walk or bicycle or take transit, then you're actually clearing 
all of those cars, uh, uh, all of those roads uh, from additional cars that would otherwise be on and would create congestion for you as a driver. So it's, uh, these are not separate things. I think they can mutually benefit multiple um, people and what they want to do. So we want to create more choices. The other is uh, during recreation times. It's also really important for us to have healthy play uh, opportunities, right? So playgrounds for children are really important. Recreation spaces for adults are really important. But that's not the only important thing, right? The transportation piece is also important because of our daily lives, and that's transportation is something we want to do every day. Recreation is something that we do when we have free time, and we don't always have free time. So the recreation piece is a complement to the transportation piece. Access to uh, connecting transportation and recreation is also important because uh, if you can't get to a place easily, you're less likely to do it frequently. So if we want people to, you know, play more actively during their free times, then we actually have to find uh, ways to connect them transportationally and easily so that you can do that all the time as well. Healthy food is an important piece as well. So if you think about um, our communities, not all of our communities have healthy food, right, uh, present. In fact, very frequently, uh, we might put in place a convenience store that sells only junk foods or fast food outlets in our suburban communities when we know that uh, from the research that if you have a lot of exposure to unhealthy food, chances are you'll gain weight and eat less healthily. So as people try to eat more healthily, what we need to do is put into our communities things like supermarkets. Even if we have to think about the size and scale so that more, more communities and neighborhoods have supermarkets nearby that they can walk to, for example. Farmers markets, community gardens, water fountains and drinking fountains uh, throughout our public realm and communities are important things to think about. And then finally, our buildings. We spend a lot of time in our buildings and they can be a really important facilitator of being able to be healthy on a daily basis. So. We have many buildings that have locked stairs. And so even people who want to use the stairs, or they might be you know, claustrophobic or uh, afraid of the elevators, and, and how will these folks uh, be able to traverse our buildings, right? And, and you know, walking the stairs, you might think, oh, what can a little bit of stair walking do? Well, there are actually studies that show, like there's a Harvard alumni men study of over 10,000 alumni men, and the men who climbed 20 to 34 floors of stairs per week. So if you divide that, divide that by seven, that's only about three to five floors a day. They had a 29% reduction in their risk of stroke, independent of whether they exercise in leisure time. And so these small things done daily actually are really imp important in improving our health. And a supportive environment in our buildings, streets, neighborhoods, uh, and communities are really important piece of helping people become healthy, not just individual like education and individual will because we're all busy and a supportive environment enables us and supports us in those healthy lifestyle changes we're trying to make when we're busy. So that's what we're striving for. Water and sanitation issues were really important contributors to past epidemics. And what do we do? We don't just tell people to wash their hands and drink safe water. We actually have created the infrastructure, right, where we say, wash your hands, and you can do it because every building has, like, clean water and soap and restrooms, right? And so similarly, when we say, hey, you need to be more active, you need to uh, eat more healthily, um, drink healthier beverages, we need to actually create those infrastructures, too, that support people so that they don't fail.
If you're interested in learning more about the Winter Cities shakeup, go to wintercitiesconference.com. For Terra Informa, I'm Jody Zink. Thank you for listening. That was Jody Zink with interviews from Winter City Shakeup 2017, a conference held in Edmonton looking at possible improvements to wintertime city living. If you want to hear more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Have you ever wanted to be on the radio? Terra Informa is recruiting. If you want to be on our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Jody Zink, Amanda Rooney, Carter Gorzitza, and Dylan Hall. We've been your hosts, Shelley Jodlang and Caitlin McNabb. Catch you next week. <laughs>